Well, you can stay in Hebrews chapter 1, because that's where we're going to be this morning. And what's interesting, we're not going to do the whole chapter. Um, That would take weeks for me. But the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1, they they actually declare the same exact thing that John 3.16 and Romans 5.8 does. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, but God commends, demonstrates, proves his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. They declare the same thing that those verses declare, that God loved us so much he sent his son to die for us. What the writer of the Hebrews does is he gives us a bit more perspective because he explains to us who the Son is and what majesty he had. You see, Jesus is God from all eternity. Think about that. Since Jesus is God from all eternity, he lacked nothing in heaven, nothing for all eternity. There was no greater height for him to achieve, nothing to add to himself. He was already there. But as we sing in the song, you know what a beautiful name it is, we sing that verse, he didn't want heaven without us. You know, you have to indulge me for a moment here. Sometimes I see people get, you know, crazy about lyrics or whatever, and I don't understand why they said this or whatever, and they change lyrics and stuff, and sometimes it's warranted. But I am absolutely baffled that people change that lyric, he didn't want heaven without us, as if it somehow implies Jesus was lonely or incomplete without us. The song doesn't say that. The song is stating the awesomeness and the majesty of our Savior, and that while he didn't need or uh, to do anything to better his situation, he wanted to do something to better our situation. And isn't that what makes love so wonderful? You know, sometimes as I'm... I'll, lay in bed or wake up in the morning, I look over and I see that my wife is still there. And I think, she picked me. She could have picked anyone, but she picked me. What makes love so wonderful is that someone wanted you and they could have picked anyone else. And here's the wonderful news, the good news, is that for God so loved the world, You never have to wonder if you were picked. He loves you. He wanted you. And that the Lord wanted us does not make him lesser. It just shows how glorious he is. When these Hebrew Christians were experiencing heavy persecution and were struggling with the idea of maybe leaving Jesus and going back to the old system of animal sacrifices, the writer is is seeking to convince them to not do so by showing how much better Jesus is, how glorious Jesus not just is, but was and is and will be. So in understanding how awesome Jesus has always been, they would understand his awesome love in an even better way then why would you go anywhere else when you have Jesus? And that's what I would like to share with you this Christmas season, the wonder of the incarnation, that the God of, as we just sang, the God of all majesty and all power decided to lay aside those privileges out of love for us. So Hebrews chapter one, we'll be in verses two and three. I'll start reading verse one, but then we'll Go into detail in verses two and three. God who at sundry times and in diverse, various manners, so God in many ways and in, uh, in many different times and many different ways, he spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. 
has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. God in the past, you know, we, we studied as we were looking at why the rapture is important, you know, a couple weeks ago we were looking at the idea that God speaks to different people different ways through different, you know, in different means, says different things to different people at different times. That's what the verse one, verse one is talking about. But then verse two explains that God in these last days, he has spoken unto us, King James says, by his son. But if you notice the word kiz is in, not in the text because it's in italics, it's not there. So literally it means he has spoken unto us by a son. A son stands in contrast to the prophets. And the idea is that when you consider how awesome the prophets are, a son is way better, right? A son is way better. Jesus actually referenced this concept and he he talked about God the Father's heart behind this idea of he sent the prophets but then he sent a son when he gave a parable in Matthew chapter 21 in verses 33 through 37. We'll be in Hebrews mostly today but I'll be referencing a few other verses. But in this parable in Matthew 21, 33, Jesus says, hear another parable. There was a certain householder, landowner, which planted a vineyard and he hedged it round about, digged a wine press in it, and then built a tower and loaned it out to husbandmen, farmers, tenders. And, and then he went into a far country. The idea is they're going to work the vineyard. They get to keep a portion of the profits, but the bulk of it goes to the, per, the owner. Verse 34, and when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to those husbandmen, the farmers, that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And he sent other servants again, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. You know, this is Jesus in parable form speaking how God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and they rejected him. And so God said, well, I will send a son. I'll send my son. Surely they will listen to him. Surely they will respect him. Christ's position as the son of God is the highest position possible. There's no way to improve upon that. It's not like, you know, well, I'm the son of God. How do I, how do I get better, you know? There's no way to improve upon that. And we'll examine what that means in detail when we look at verse 3. But here we see that this is who Jesus is from all eternity. He wasn't non-existent at some point and then created as the Son of God. He, he didn't become the Son of God. He is the eternal second member of the triune Godhead. And this status is pointed out because the writer wants to share with us both Jesus' past and future role as the Son of God. He goes on to say, whom he has appointed heir of all things, we're back in Hebrews 1, verse 2, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So one refers to his future, one refers to his past. We start with future first. He says, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. Now an heir is someone who inherits possessions. So how many possessions does Jesus, is Jesus going to inherit? All of them. <laughs> there can be no more definitive statement to Jesus' position over creation. All of it belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the king of Israel, and he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he returns, he will rule with a rod of iron, and his rule will have no end. Now, 
that future role that Jesus will have, it makes perfect sense when we consider his past role as the Son of God. It says that by whom also he made the worlds. And we studied that a couple of weeks ago. That world refers to the ages, the, the times, you know, where God made these covenants with different people at different times. Jesus was involved in every time period of man and in every covenant God made with man from creation all the way down to the church. What's, what's the importance of that? Well, as the Son of God, Jesus is both the initiation and the culmination of God's goodwill toward man. God's heart has always been toward us, and Jesus is from the beginning to the end of all of that. This is exactly what the angels, we sang about it, this is exactly what the angels announced when Christ was born. Look at Luke 2, that beautiful, famous Christmas passage that we so often study during this time of year. Luke 2, verses 8 through 14. In Luke 2, verses 8 through 14, it says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto him, said unto them, Don't be afraid. That's not why we're here. Don't be afraid. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. I have great news for you, wonderful news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, and which is also, which is Christ the Lord. A Savior, but it's God himself, Christ the Lord. You know, it's interesting. We talk about Christmas, we think of peace on earth, goodwill to, toward men, and so often the, that phrase is used, you know, in the idea of us, you know? Like, I always, I always hear it, you know, you know this, is, this is a time where it's goodwill toward man, you know, like, like this concept that, you know, you get to be grouchy and nasty to each other for 11 months, but for four weeks, and we just be nice, you know? As if that's what the angel's saying, you know? I've watched you shepherds for 11 months and all you do is bicker and fight. You know, you, you don't like it when the sheep get mixed and all this kind of stuff. You know, can for four weeks you just be nice? As if that's what the angel's announcing here. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's the great news, the glad tidings of great joy for everyone. And there shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. Why? Because of the babe in the manger. And on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Why? Because of the babe in the manger. We can know that God desires peace with us and that his will towards us is good. That's what it means. And so what the angels are declaring is that Jesus he is both the initiation and the culmination of God's goodwill towards man, that his will towards us has always been good. He's always wanted peace with us. He's always wanted a relationship with us. He's always wanted to make things right. And Jesus is the beginning and the end of that. Now, if the prospect of a benevolent dictatorship by, run by a sovereign creator makes you nervous, it's only because you don't understand his nature which is what the writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about in verse 3. 
who, he says in verse 3, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. He starts off with this first aspect of Christ's nature by explaining to us that we don't have to worry about that because he's the most qualified person to reign. He's the most qualified person to rule. He is the brightness of his glory, referring to the Father's glory. That's interesting. The word brightness there can refer to both reflected brightness or a source of brightness. And what's interesting about that is because Jesus is both. He does reflect the Father's brightness, the Father's glory, but he has his own glory that shines exactly as the Father's. When he was on the earth, he told the Father right before he was about to die in John 17, glorify me with the glory I had before when I was with you. So he has his own glory because he's fully God. You know, Jesus is not just a really good guy. He's not just a a highly qualified individual for the job. He is God Almighty. He is the express image of his, again, his father's person. The word person means substance, nature, essence, real being. He is, the express image means an exact representation of his father's substance, nature, essence, real being. He's not just someone who has a little bit of God or is kind of God or is like God alike. He is fully God in every way. That's when, why Jesus said to Philip, he said, Philip, have you been so long with me in John 14, 9 that you don't realize that having seen me, you've seen the father? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's always been that way. He has all the attributes that the Father has. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. He sustains and maintains everything simply by the word of his power. Jesus is eternal, all-powerful, and all-knowing. He has zero limitations. Is there anyone else who can make that claim? That makes Jesus the most qualified person to be a king of kings. He is the only one who has the resources necessary to do the job correctly. Now, that, of course, doesn't prove God's goodwill towards man. It just means he would do the best job possible. One can do something right without concern for who it affects, but that's where the incarnation comes in because the other part of Christ's nature is that he became a man. This almighty God who is the express, the exact representation of his Father who upholds all things, sustains all things by the word of his power. It says that when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, out of his great love for us, out of his goodwill towards us, stepped into our world and purged our sins by himself. He didn't use an intermediary. He didn't use a lesser symbol, you know. He himself cleansed, washed, purged our sins. In Hebrews 9, verse 12, it tells us, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He purged our sins. 
The word sins there means to act contrary to the will and law of God, to miss the mark of whatever God's standard may be. God clearly lays out his standard in his word, and, and we have missed that mark. All the ways that we've missed that mark, whether it's in attitude, it's in action, it's in motive, any way we miss that mark, Jesus cleansed us from those things. Now, Romans chapter 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is what? It's death, separation from God for all eternity. Sin cannot be ignored. God would not be the just king of kings if he ignored sin. In Psalm 89, 14, it tells us that righteousness is the foundation of his throne. There is no throne without righteousness. There's no basis for his kingdom if there's no righteousness, if he's not righteous. But you know what? I think those of us who know, you know, many of you probably have heard that, that verse, but the verse has an ending that most of us, at least I didn't remember. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of your throne, Psalm eighty nine fourteen says, but then it says this, mercy and truth shall go before your face. And that word mercy is that Old Testament equivalent of agape, has said his unwavering devotion, his loyal love, his unconditional commitment to us. Jesus had to punish sin, but his love demanded he take our place so we could be rescued. And so that's why I say Hebrews 1 through, 1 through 3 echoes the words of John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. For God so loved the world, he purged our sins. But God demonstrated his love towards us, and that while we're yet sinners, he purged our sins. It's saying the same exact thing. The only way that could happen is if God the Son, the God the Son, the majestic Son of God, the all-powerful one who is living in perfection and is perfect himself, who shines his own perfect glory, the only way that could happen is if God the Son became the Son of Man. Exactly as Isaiah 9 predicted, as we sang, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. God who has spoken through the prophets, now in these last days he has spoken to us through a son. Unto us a child is born, a man. Unto us a son is given, the son of God. He is both, his nature, God and man, the incarnation, the wonder And because this is in the writer's mind, who wrote Hebrews in the very beginning, we find the Christmas story in an unlikely place. Not a gospel, you know, not a personal account of someone who experienced the birth of Christ, but in a doctrinal letter. (laughs) Turn to Hebrews 10 with me. Now, The book of Hebrews in chapter 10 tells the Christmas story in a little bit different way than you and I are used to hearing. You know, we are used to hearing it from the shepherd's perspective, from Mary's perspective, from Joseph's perspective, you know, from the wise men's perspective, um, from the shepherd's perspective, even in a sense maybe from the angel's perspective. But here we see it from Jesus' perspective. In verses 1 and 2, it explains the problem. It says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come 
and not the very image, the very substance. We know the difference between a shadow and it's the actual thing. You know, it's night and day. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very substance of the things, that law can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, they could never make the comers thereunto perfect. Hold that word in mind. It's going to become important later. Perfect. Those sacrifices could never make those who brought them perfect. For if they could, verse 2, then would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, if it finished the job, then they could have stopped bringing them, right? But of course they didn't. Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. That's why they would have had to, they could have stopped. They would have no more conscience of sins. But instead, through the law, these sacrifices, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder, a remembrance again, made of sins every year. It might have been glorious in the Day of Atonement to see that goat wander off into the wilderness and to say, God's forgiven us, praise the Lord. But you'd have to do it again next year and still hope that that goat would go wandering off into the wilderness. And every year it'd be the same. Every time you messed up and you had to come bring an offering to the tabernacle or to the temple, it was a reminder that it wasn't done. And the reason why is verse 4, for it's not possible the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, which is why, which is why when he comes into the world, when Jesus came into the world, this is what he said, and it's a quote from the Psalms. Sacrifice and offering you would not, you did not want, you didn't desire, but a body thou hast prepared me. Jesus, as he is about to come into the world to be born as a babe, he turned to the Father and he said, you weren't looking for all these sacrifices. That's not what you want. You didn't want these religious rituals. They served a purpose, but that's not what we were looking for. What you're looking for was this, me taking on this body that you've prepared for me. And then said I, I'm good with that. Lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it's written about me. This has been prophesied. It's been predicted. You've been pointing forward to it. Lo, I come. In the volume of the book is written of me, I come to do thy will, O God. I will be the perfect man. I will die for their sins. I will be the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, what he had in mind here was his love for us. Now, verse 8 explains, above or before when he had said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offerings for sin, you don't want that, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. The, he was, he's explaining, those were the things that you're thinking about going back to. Well, then said he, after the reference to that, that God doesn't want that, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He explains, Jesus is making clear that he's going to take away the first, the, the law, that he may establish the second, not, I'm sorry, not the law, the old covenant, and that he might establish the second, the new covenant. By the which will, that will of Jesus, the will of God, that we would be rescued by God becoming a man. By that will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, he stands daily ministering and offering uh, oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, from that moment, after he finished the work of the cross, from that moment, 
expecting, looking forward to the time when his enemies would be made his footstool. Why? Because for one offering, by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereabout, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Jesus' heart was to come that he might do these things for us, three things that are listed here. If you've repented of your sins and trusted God, the Son of God for your salvation, verses 14 through 17 are a description of who you are because of his incarnation, because of his love for you. And what has his love done for us? Three things, as I said. Verse 14 is the first one. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. What does it mean to be perfected forever? Well, first off, it explains this is a blessing for those who are sanctified. The ones, literally means the ones presently being made holy. That's you and me, right? You know, when we placed our trust in Christ, immediately we were justified. You know, totally, we were totally cleared of, of guilt and we were made righteous, right? And then began the process of being made more like the Lord, sanctification. That's us. So the, those who are perfected forevermore are us, the people who are being sanctified, being made more like Christ every day. And what is this reason that we're perfected forevermore? Why is he bringing it up? For by one offering, we'll be referenced back to verses 12 and 13. You know, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross finished everything that needed to be done to sanctify us. And with that job done, Jesus is now waiting for the next step, right? Which is the promise of the Father that he's going to rule on the earth, that his enemies will be made his footstool. Now, can I tell you something? A super important concept. <laughs> Jesus would not be sitting on the right hand of the Father waiting for the next thing if the previous thing was unfinished, right? Which means the previous thing is finished. That the sacrifice he gave, that one sacrifice for sins forever, that perfected us forever, okay? So the question is, what does it mean that we're perfected forever? Well, five other verses in Hebrews mention this perfection and give us a better understanding of what it means. So turn to Hebrews 7, verse 11 with me. I'm going to start here. You didn't know Hebrews was a Christmas book, did you? Hebrews 7, 11. It tells us, if therefore perfection, there's that word, were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need that was there for another priest that should arise after the order of Melchizedek, referring to Jesus, and not be called after the order of Aaron? Jesus was not a Levite. He was of the tribe of Judah. So the idea is, if the Old Testament sacrificial system could bring perfection, then why did Jesus have to come? That's what he's asking them. Well, verse 19 for the law made nothing, here it is again, perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did, referencing what Jesus did for us. But here's what explains what it did. By the which we draw near unto God. Now, 
Hebrews 7, 11, 19, when we put them together, it explains that being perfected allows us to draw near to God. That was an impossibility under the Old Testament sacrificial system. The tabernacle was barred to everyone except the priests, and even they could not go into the Holy of Holies but once a year. And that was only the high priest. The old covenant shouted, stay back, stay away. Remember when God first, his presence came on Mount Sinai? What were the first, first words he gave to Moses? Put police tape around this mountain. I'm paraphrase. <laughs> Put police tape around this mountain so that no person comes on it and touches it, no animal touches it, lest I break forth and wipe you all out. It's not that God didn't want anyone to come close. It's that sin had not been completely dealt with. And so the message of the tabernacle, of the temple, is stay at a distance. Stay at a distance. You cannot come near. So this being perfected allows us to draw near to God. We don't have to stay away. Why? Hebrews 9, 9. Hebrews 9, verse 9. It explains here what the priests did going through what they did in the tabernacle and in the temple. And it tells us in verse 9 that they were um, a symbol in the sense they pointed forward to a substance. They were a shadow that was pointing forward to a something real that was coming. Verse 9 of Hebrews 9, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So we already know that this perfection allows us to draw near. Now Hebrews 9.9 tells us it has to do with a conscience thing. Now what is conscience? A con with science knowledge. With knowledge. This word conscience in the Greek, it first arose when Greek philosophers were describing the part of us that uncomfortably reminds us of our offenses and evokes the torments of hell until such behavior is amended. Anyone ever experienced that? We think of conscience and we normally think of Jiminy, Jimmy Cricket, right? Is it Jiminy Cricket? Jiminy Cricket, I think. If I get that wrong, tough. <laughs> but that's not how conscience was originally conceived. The word conscience came about because of what you guys, I, was, I said, have you ever experienced that? And you're like, yeah. It's the part of you that says, don't do that. And then when you do do it, it says, you're bad. <laughs> and says, you need to fix this. And it keeps poking you until you do. That's what conscience originally was explained as. In fact, in the Greek Old Testament, the word is only used three times. And all times, it speaks of the part of our hearts that serves as prosecutor and judge. You are guilty, and you need to fix it. Now, later on, both Jews and Greeks came to think of it the way that we do today, like an advisor. Those who listened to the advice of their conscience had a clean conscience, right? Paul talks about having a clean conscience before God and men, that, that he had listened to that advisor. But here's the kicker. What happens when you don't listen? When you don't listen, the tormenting part of the conscience kicks in until you make up for it somehow, right? It kicks in and it keeps kicking until you make up for it somehow, until you fix it. But is there any way to make up for our sin? Is there? No. 
And the New Testament calls our attempts to make up for our sin dead works. Dead works. What are dead works? If you have a cat, you probably have seen dead works. When the cat brings the mole or the mouse or the bird, you know, and it's all excited and proud and it's playing with it, it brings it to you. And you're thinking, huh, because it's a dead work. It's a, what are you bringing me this for? I did it. I didn't want you to do that. The Bible describes it a little bit more graphically, that all of our righteousnesses, all of our good deeds are like the politically correct term, filthy rags. The word means menstruous rags. Yeah. You would not be happy if someone presented that to you and said, look at what I did. You would be grossed out. You would never consider that to be a good work. It would be a work that is worthless in a sense. It doesn't do any good. It's a dead work. Jesus, his sacrifice rescued us from that kind of life where we're saying to God, 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 I, I did something to make up for what I did wrong. I know I did wrong, I know I did wrong for the last 10 months, but these last two months, Christmas is coming close. I'm trying to get better, trying to make up for it, trying to fix it, God, trying to be a good person. Jesus' sacrifice rescues us from that kind of life so we can serve God every day even though we've sinned and fallen short. Look at Hebrews 9.14. It says, you know, if Christ's blood obtained eternal redemption for us, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge, cleanse, you know, wash away your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This concept is echoed when we get to chapter 10 in verses 1 and 2, when it says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, not the very substance, it could never with those sacrifices which they offered year to year make us perfect, allow us to come near to God, allow us to be able to just serve him freely even though we fail. For if that were the case, then all those offerings would have stopped because the worshipers once purged would have no more conscience of sins. Being perfected forever, guys, means you and I never, ever have to relate to God on the basis of performance again. Amen? Is our goal to always do the right thing? Yes. Do we still fall short of that? Yes. (laughs) But I don't have to go on the works treadmill to make up for it. Jesus already did that for me. My conscience is still my advisor, but I no longer must listen to its torturous condemnations. I'm free. If you're in Christ, you are free. Isn't that awesome? You're perfected forever. That's the first thing. The second thing is verse 16. This is the covenant that I, in chapter 10. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. The word laws is plural, so it's not referring to the law of Moses, but just God's eternal standards, his eternal laws that have always been and always will be. God's standards, his laws, his rules, his, his, his rights and, and his wrongs, they aren't simply a list of do's and don'ts. That's the dead works, the performance-based relationship we've been rescued from. In the same way, you and I don't, or do, or don't do certain things 
toward those we love because we love them. Christ's sacrifice made it possible for God to put into us the knowledge and the ability to please him. For God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who commanded the light to shine, his light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts, the glorious light of Jesus Christ, right? He has put his spirit inside of us. God who is light is living inside of us. You know, Jesus, when, you know, they were saying, you know, don't go, you know, you know, Mary's holding on to him, you know, nobody wants him to leave, and he said, I have to go. If I go, then I can get out of this body and I can get into all of your bodies. I can send my spirit and put him inside of you. And I who am light, I who am God, can live through you. I can change you. I can do something supernatural. God, who commanded the light to shine in the darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of their power may be of God and not of us. Guys, because of grace, because of the cross, because of his love for us, because of what he did for us, the incarnation, you and I don't have to sin anymore. We are empowered to obey the Lord. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to wake up every day and just go, I'm going to blow it. I'm a slave to sin. You're not. Romans 6, verses 6 to 14. I don't, I'm out of time to read it, read it today, but go read it because it says that you know, sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under the law, you're under grace. We have been empowered to obey. He's written his law in our hearts and put, him in, put it into our minds. That's the second thing that the incarnation did for us. That was uh, Romans 6, 6 through 14. The third thing is in Hebrews 10, 17. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Our sins, everything that we've done that's contrary to God's will and God's standard, everything. Our iniquity deals with the heart a little bit more. It refers to that which is done in rebellion to God. Everything we've done in a heart of rebellion towards God. Every, every way we've fallen short of God's will, God's standard, whether we meant to do the right thing or not, whether the time, all the times that we rebelled against him in our heart, it says he will remember no more. When the Lord thinks of you, he thinks of who you are in Christ. Who you are in Christ. You know, something else to think about when we think of God remembering Every time we see, and the Lord remembered so-and-so, um, it means that God began working actively in their life again. It's not like, you know, uh, the Lord's up in heaven and he's, you know, playing checkers with Gabriel, you know, and, 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 you, know, and you, know, you know, Noah's on the flood for months and months and months, and, you know, Gabriel's like, hey, how's Noah doing? The Lord's like, oh, no, oh, man, I, rem- I just, I forgot about Noah, and God remembered Noah, you know, as, as Genesis says. No, that's, that's not it at all. God never forgets. He's never out of control. When it says he remembered so-and-so, it means he began to work actively in their life again. The idea here is it's not just God passively sees you in Christ. It's that whenever he is working actively in your life, he is never doing it on the basis of who you used to be. He is doing it on the basis of who Christ has made you now. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Does God discipline us when we sin? Of course. Because that's what a parent does if they love their child. But he never punishes us. He never pays us back for our failures. 
How many times a week does the enemy lie to you about that? This is happening because you didn't read your Bible today. This is happening because you failed in this area today. You didn't keep this commitment. You were not nice to that person. This is happening because of this, 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 and this. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. Surely the Lord disciplines us. But God, God is not getting us back or getting us. Don't listen to those lies. Rest in this awesome promise that God will never treat you on that basis again. Amen? So you are forever perfected. You're empowered to obey, and God will never treat you according to your sins again if you have repented of your sins and put your trust in the Son of God. So, anyway. When you see the baby in the manger and even the Lamb of God on the cross from now on, you think about that. Don't forget that he's the eternal king of heaven and earth. Don't forget that it was his unwavering stand against sin and his amazing love for us that brought him to our world and led him to the crucifixion. You know, whether Christmas is a big holiday that society glorifies and says is awesome or whether it's ignored by the masses, Christians should all be in awe when we think about the incarnation, right? And so I ask you this morning as we close, do you take the time to consider who it is that became a man when you think about Jesus becoming a man? That he didn't need you, he wasn't lonely, but that he wanted you. And he did such amazing things for you in that love for you. Now, when I share this awesome plan of God that his son who created all things and will rule over all things, that he came to rescue us from our sin, people often will ask me, if that's true, then why are things such a mess right now? Why don't we see the results of this wonder today? Well, <laughs> I think 2020 is a great year to answer that really important question. <laughs> I think it's really important for you and me to know the answer to that question on this Christmas. And so here's my challenge to you. Please invite folks to come or, or to watch online if they're not you know, comfortable coming just yet next week because if the Lord should tarry, my plan is to go through Hebrews chapter two with you next Sunday so we can answer that question. And then we can talk about the mindset that we should have not just for this Christmas, not just for 2020, even though there's not much of it left, but the attitude and mindset that we should have as Christians for the rest of our lives. Let's all stand. Oh, Jesus, we cannot conceive of your majesty. We, we try to, of course, because your word explains it, and so we try to fathom, Lord, what it's like that you're God, what it's like that you are eternal, what it's like that you, you are the outshining of, of God's glory, that you, you are very nature, very substance, that you are the eternal Lord, God the Son. But Lord, even as we try to fathom, Lord, it melts our hearts to think that you who needed nothing wanted us. Lord, we are very acquainted with our failures, our sin, our rebellion against you. We're very acquainted with our imperfections. And yet, Lord, to think that you said 
you are my beloved. There is no spot in you. That you set your love upon us and you proved it through the incarnation. Lord Jesus, we say we love you back. We say thank you and we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.